My name is Ravi Shriskandaraja, Executive Director of QIC's Client Solutions and Capital Division. I'm speaking with Dr. Sebastian Thomas, who's in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for COP27, sharing his on-ground insights for our Conversations from COP27 podcast series. Welcome, Sebastian. Thanks, Ravi. Good to catch up. What an event to be at. It sounds amazing, Sebastian. Uh, but let's get into some of the discussions that have been had. And uh, obviously, COP27 opened with a bang with Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, making quite an eye-catching speech with a real focus on the developed world versus the developing world, if I can put it that way. I don't want to make it. But actually, he was asking for a pact, um, and specifically a pact between the developed and emerging world. And then he talked about uh, the developed world uh, adapting its financial models um, as a critical element in this transition. Uh, and that's quite interesting for us because, as you know, QIC is doing a lot of work on NGFS. Were there any discussions? Have you been to any discussions around the adaptation of the developed world's financial models broadly? And more specifically, has there been any discussions around NGFS? The short answer is yes, yes, and yes. Um, so the NGFS, the network uh, for greening the financial system, is um, a network of largely central banks from uh, around the world who um, have recognised the fact that climate change does not figure in the sort of financial or investment calculus. And and I and I think what is stark for me this time around as uh, as someone who's been in this space for a long time is the is the comprehensive and clear and and deep recognition that 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 is something that needs to shift um and so we're talking about a, a a fundamental cultural change in many respects as as the financial sector um comes to understand the implications of climate change um something else that actually caught my attention was the president of Seychelles, uh, the archipelago of East Africa, uh, his name's Wavel Rama Ram Kalawan, uh, with apologies to all our listeners from the Seychelles, obviously for my pronunciation, but he made a commitment around uh, protecting 100% of the mangroves and seagrass meadows within the Seychelles. Now that would obviously involve blue carbon Talk to me, explain to us the importance of blue carbon um, and and why that is so important in this equation as well. Yeah, okay. So the idea of the blue economy is worth thinking about because everything that we've done on land in the last 10,000 years, from agriculture and building towns and cities to developing industry to tourism, recreation, energy generation, all of that that's taken us 10,000 years to do on land, we are doing this century in the ocean. So energy, um, mining, um, tourism, living in the ocean and so on and so forth, as well as farming and at, at significant industrial scales. So blue carbon is a key component of that because the ocean absorbs a vast amount of carbon from the atmosphere and also stores and sequesters that carbon in those um, coastal and marine ecosystems, particularly in the sediments. So often the carbon isn't actually blue, it's brown because it's in the mud under the mangroves and seagrasses. Um, but it has this, this effect that if you can conserve those ecosystems as uh, the Seychelles is seeking to do, 
there's there are these ripple effects that that spread beyond just a carbon benefit. So you're providing habitat for for fish, for turtles, for dugongs, for all of those species that um, are a part of key key parts of our food chains. It's been really challenging to get blue carbon to market over the last 10 years, um, simply because of economies of scale, because of the costs of, of doing it, because of the lack of uh, rigorous project methodologies and so on. But something that's very interesting to me is the fact not that we're going to bring those mangrove and seagrass carbon credits into a market, but that in places like the Indo-Pacific, where we've traditionally talked about small island developing states, we're now thinking about large ocean states. So the countries, our, our Pacific family, those countries have vast resources in ocean carbon potentially, um, and that includes down into the deep sea, but it also includes in a wider blue economy sense, the genetic, biological and mineral resources of those ocean areas. It also includes the opportunity to have large-scale marine renewable energy to create um, extraordinary large-scale industrial-scale floating aquaculture or uh, macroalgal carbon sequestration approaches. All of those sorts of things, with tourism, with culture, with fishing, um, all of those can be part of a sustainable blue economy going forward. Uh, and carbon's a great, great button to, to press to activate that. So my name's Ravi Shrishkandaraja, Executive Director of QIC's Climate Solutions and Capital Division. I'm speaking with Dr. Sebastian Thomas, who's in, in wonderful Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt following COP27 uh, for our Conversations from COP27 podcast series. I have it that you have actually been speaking with someone from the Australian Industry Group, Tenant Reid. What was his perspective? Uh, I caught up with Tenant yesterday at the Australian Pavilion, and I should say the different countries have their different pavilions. The Australian Pavilion has a coffee machine, and the queue is uh, around the corner. It's the best coffee in at the COP, uh, this is well known, um, and the Australian Pavilion is looking great. So there's, there's a no lot of No Egyptian folks. coffee at COP, <laughs> just Australian um, coffee. <laughs> the, uh, the downside of, of this particular COP is that um, the food and beverage venues are a little limited, um, but the Australian coffee machine is in is in um, uh, hot demand and well 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 loved by many. So I spoke with Tenant Reid uh, yesterday and asked him really about his views on industry moving forward as part of the transition. And I think he was making really important points about the fact that technological innovations and solutions are, are key, uh, but there's a huge range of those that we need to be exploring. We can't necessarily choose a particular uh, horse to back. There's a lot of R&D that needs to be done, but again, that represents big opportunities. So green hydrogen is, is um, an area where Australia is moving Fortescue Future Industries, for example, has, has a pavilion here. And you know they are one example of an organization that's doing a lot of investment and development in the green hydrogen space. There is potentially a great export market for uh, our hydrogen coming out of Australia. Um, so that is a, a real opportunity, particularly because we have in Australia the industrial and technical skills the, the, the industrial cultures and the industrial infrastructures to support uh, a growing hydrogen economy. But there's there's also other things that we need to be exploring. And some of those can be, you know, quite innovative in, in terms of, of how we go about it. 
So I think that Tennant is pointing to the fact that across different industries, and particularly the emissions intensive industries, we need to be doing lots of work. So speaking with um, people from Holcim, a significant cement company, it was it was really positive to see the fact that they are doing everything they possibly can to decarbonise across their supply chain in terms of scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. And there are a range of ways that they can do that. But of course, one of the challenges is that cement produces a great deal of carbon emissions in its processes. So those process emissions very, very challenging. They can't necessarily be captured and so on and so forth. And yet, even those emission intensive um, businesses or businesses in those sectors are looking at alternatives to their traditional feedstocks. They're looking at ways that they can develop new products that can replace those old ones. And it just it just made me think that it's, it's a very positive approach when um, an emissions intensive industry can say, we recognise that we transition to a different business model, including different products in order to, to survive. Sebastian, you've talked to us on what it's like inside COP27. Talk to me about Shamil Sheikh outside COP27. Is it a bit like Queensland? Beautiful one day, perfect the next. Well, Ravi, um, I haven't had too much chance to explore, but right now I'm looking at the Red Sea, which is stunningly blue. The weather is gorgeous. The waters are inviting. And I have to say as well that the Egyptian people here are just incredibly friendly, incredibly generous, and, and just authentic. Sharm El Sheikh is, it's a resort town. It's not a place that people live and raise families, I think. Most of the people here probably come from Cairo and Alexandria and elsewhere to work. And it's its its a little ironic, if you like, that we have a massive conference around the terrible impacts of climate change in these, these beautiful places. But there are reasons for that. You know, there has to be security. There has to be you know, uh, appropriate facilities. But Sharm El Sheikh is uh, a beautiful place. The Egyptian people are wonderful. Uh, and if I do have a chance to get out and enjoy the water a little, I certainly will. Terrific. Thank you. We've really enjoyed your insights. Uh, Sebastian, you've been listening to our podcast series where our climate and environment lead, Dr. Sebastian Thomas, has been calling in from Sharm El Sheikh, where he provides us with our insights. Tomorrow, uh, Sebastian will be speaking with my colleague, uh, Katrina King, where and he'll be reporting back on science and youth and future generations day uh, from COP27. Thank you. And until tomorrow, goodbye.